What we're doing, this is, I believe, week four of our series in the book of Hebrews, which we are calling Jesus is Better, because basically that's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. If you look up on the stage, we've had this kind of cool looking backdrop for the last few weeks. It's kind of out in the lobby as well. And have you kind of gotten the picture of what it's trying to paint for you? Kind of what, we've, what you see is you see these ascending angles as we move closer that put all of the focal point in the room on the cross. And not only that, you see that the wood is not all the same, nor does it look particularly new. We tried to use, we had a big, huge pack of uh, uh, scrapped wood laying around the church. I had a bunch in my backyard, so there's some pieces of my kid's old playhouse that's up here on the stage as well. But the idea in using even things that are old to draw our attention to the cross is because that's basically what the writer of Hebrews is doing throughout the book, saying, look at everything that God has done in the past. It is good, it is great, but it was always pointing towards something greater, something better. That all that God did through the Old Testament, all that God did for His people Israel was to culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. But the reason why he has to go at length and spend 13 chapters unpacking the fact that Jesus is better is because the writer of Hebrews was right into a group of people who were doubting that fact. Life was getting hard. Following Jesus was getting tough. And they were, they were getting scared, persecuted, driven from their homes. Their properties were being seized. And they're starting to ask the question, which I think would come up in all of our minds in that circumstance, are we sure it's worth it? Are we sure there's not an easier way? Because the Judaism, the synagogue life that we'd grown up in, if we go back to that, life will sure get easier. A lot of the tension that we're facing will go away. And don't we do that all the time? When we encounter tension in life, we look for that pressure release valve. We look for something just to take the heat off for a little bit. But what the writer of Hebrews does throughout this book, to answer their concern, their, their question of whether or not Jesus really is better, is to basically go on this whole long sermon letter journey of taking them back through their history to show how, look, no, he really is better. If you go back to synagogue life, you're not gaining anything. You're losing everything that there is in Jesus. He's encouraging them to press on because even though the Christian life is often filled with suffering, it ultimately leads to unspeakable glory. So, Push through the sufferings to see the glory on the other side. He's going to continue to point us through this book to Jesus as the one who he says in chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. And if he were to call us to walk a similar path, it's worth it. So press on. We saw at the beginning of the book just... This amazing, the first four verses basically sum up the entire book. It's almost like if, you, uh, if this were a web page, every phrase would be like a hyperlink to a whole long treatise. And basically that's what you see. Every phrase that's in those first four verses of the book, he unpacks at length throughout the rest of the book. He says that God who spoke in many ways throughout history has now spoken definitively and finally most full through his Son. And he says that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom God also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And right now, moment by moment, He is holding the entire universe together by the word of His power. 
He's also the one who made purification for our sins and now is seated at the right hand of God, more glorious than the angels because the name that he inherited is even more glorious than theirs. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, the rest of chapter 1 is this whole long description of just how and why Jesus is better than the angels. And it culminated in the warning that Chris Hay took us through last week. Where he says in chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard through Jesus, about Jesus. Don't drift off. Don't neglect what you've heard from Jesus. Because if God was faithful to punish Israel for their disobedience to the old covenant, which was delivered by angels, how much more, if Jesus is greater than the angels, how much greater consequences will we face if we neglect what he has said? That's the thing, and I loved that last week Chris didn't let us off the hook easy. He kept pounding that warning again and again because we do. We like to justify ourselves. We like to say, yeah, that's cool, but uh, I don't really know. That's probably for somebody else. That's for the person I'm elbowing sitting next to me right now. That warning wasn't for me. And I don't know about you guys, I felt challenged by that last week. Am I drifting? Am I neglecting to pay careful attention to what God has said? Did you think about this, that this week? You don't have to try to drift away from the Lord. That happens naturally. We're like a misaligned car where you take your hands off the steering wheel and you're in the other lane. That's what happens with us. So if we are to anchor ourselves to Christ, it must be intentional. But the amazing promise is that it's not all our effort to stay close to Jesus. He is the one who holds us together. I love what we just sang. No power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. He holds to us, so let us hold to him. Amen? Now, there's a question, though. As we've been going through the book of of Hebrews, there's a question that's come up, I think, in a lot of our minds. It's come up in a lot of my conversations with you guys. Even in our sermon prep meetings, we've been talking about this. And it's the question of, why does the writer of Hebrews start with angels? Why does he begin his letter by comparing Jesus to angels? It's not necessarily the most tangible and relevant scenario to take us through at the beginning. Right? I mean, by the time we get to chapter 3, he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. And because of Charlton Heston, we're a little bit more familiar with Moses. And so that one's just a little bit easier for us to grasp. Why didn't the writer of Hebrews take an easier comparison first to kind of ease us in before we got into the heavier stuff? I don't know. I think for all of us, there's just kind of been that sense of, okay, this is cool and all that Jesus is superior to angels, but that's not necessarily the question I came in here asking this morning. I've never had someone come to want to meet with me distraught over a dilemma in their head of whether or not Jesus is superior to angels. I've had many people come in and say, I am distraught because of the way things are going in my marriage, with my kids, with my health. Things that are a little bit more close to home. Oftentimes, these conversations, someone, someone will come in and they'll say, look, I've been pursuing something. I've been trying to get something out of my marriage, out of my job, my career, whatever it is, and it's not working. And I need help. What does God say about this? And if that's the place that you're in this morning, if you're at the point where you have realized that you've reached the end of your wisdom, that is a good place to be. I would encourage you, come talk to one of us. Come talk to one of your elders or pastors or just another mature, faithful believer that's in your life. 
We want to walk with you through these things, but understand what it means to walk with you. Oftentimes, walking with someone through a, through a situation where they feel like they don't know what to do, oftentimes those conversations are basically, it's, kind of, it's, it's trying to figure out where we've put the cart before the horse. Where have we gotten things backward? I know that you've been pursuing something, you've been wanting to get, you've been working towards something in these different areas of your life. What you've been trying to get out of your job, your career, your marriage, your family, whatever it may be, even from your relationships in the church. But let's take a step backward. Let's not just look at what you're pursuing. What is God pursuing? Let's not just look at what you're working toward. What is God working toward? Not only in your life, but in all of life. That's basically what the writer of Hebrews does throughout this book. He's, he's speaking to this group of people saying, yes, I know, you're followers of Jesus. You've been seeking to live as the new covenant community, and it's gotten hard. And you're wondering if it's worth it. But rather than just saying, buck up, cowboy, it's worth it, let's take a step back. What is it that you've been working toward? And is it the same thing that God's working toward? Instead of focusing on what you want to get out of following Jesus— Let's consider what was God seeking to get by sending Jesus in the first place. I know you're fretting about what you're going to do, but let's instead consider what God is already doing and see if those things line up. Remember, he started this thing, and he had a very particular reason in mind when he started it. That's, let me say this, that's the whole reason for the whole discussion about Jesus and angels in chapters 1 and 2. It's to take our eyes off of ourselves, put our eyes on Jesus, see him high and exalted, so that now, in chapter 2, he can bring Jesus down to our level in a way. To show that Jesus is the one who is more glorious than angels, but he is the one who has identified with us in every way. He's the one who has become like us in every way, and he did that so that ultimately we might become like him. That's what we're going to see as we look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 today. If, if, you, ha- if you need a Bible, go ahead and... Um, uh, Dave, my dad's not here today, but Dave's going to pass out some Bibles to you guys. Uh, if you need one, go ahead and put uh, your hand up. We'd love for you to have this. But we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 5 through 9. I'm going to put them up on the screens as well as we go through it. So here's what, here's what the writer says. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's what we're going to walk through in the next few minutes together. He starts out in verse 5 saying, now, remember, he comes back to his discussion of angels. He says, remember, it's not to angels that God is subjecting the world to come. And that's what we've been talking about. I love this. Think about that phrase, the world to come. What does that conjure up in your thinking? 
The writer's saying to his audience, I know you're weighed down by how hard life in this present world gets, but we're not just talking about this present world. We're talking about the world to come, the new creation, the new world order, if you will, the the kingdom of God that God has promised to bring. This is the thing which God's people have been longing for for thousands of years. That's what I'm talking to you about. In order for us to get proper perspective on this life, we need to raise our eyes to see that this life is not all that there is. This present world is not all that there is. There is a better world coming. It will be like this world in many ways, but it will be made new. It will be made right. It will be made whole. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 can say that he considered his sufferings light and momentary because even as intense as the things that he went through were, his eyes weren't only on what he was going through. His eyes were on, as he says, the glories that will be revealed in us. If you're struggling this morning, if you're wondering how you can keep going, you need to know the hope of this passage. This world is not all that there is. This present way of life will not always be the way life is. There is a better world coming. But look what he says. He says it's not to angels that that world will be subjected. They're not going to rule over that world. As a matter of fact, look look up really quickly. Back at the last verse in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 14. He identifies the role and purpose of angels as ministering spirits for, sent out to serve, those for the, serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are ministering servants. They were not created to rule. Who was created to rule the world to come? What's that? We were, exactly. You get that? We were the ones that God created to rule over His world. You agree? Maybe? Maybe not? This isn't something that we talk about often. And so that's part of the reason why we're talking about it this morning. In order to prove His point that the world to come has been designed by God to be ruled over by humans, He takes us back to one of David's most famous psalms, Psalm 8. That's what he quotes from there in, in verses 5 through 8. Now, here's the thing. Psalm 8 is, is so important in order for us to wrap our heads around what God's intention and purpose for humanity was. That What I want to do is I want to look at the whole thing. I want to look at all of Psalm 8. As a matter of fact, I want to encourage you to read it out loud together with me. We're going to do this together. Some of us are more visual learners. Some of us are more auditory learners. So let's use both of them right now. And this will help us to gain what this passage is talking about. So if you can look up on the screens, that way we can follow along together. And let's read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep 
and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Amen? Gosh, is that one familiar? You heard that one before? Yeah, feel free, absolutely. Go for it. Todd's the one that makes you stop clapping. I'll I'll let you clap. No. I love this psalm. This psalm is just, it, it blows me away. Because on the one hand, it emphasizes on the front end the glory of God revealed in creation. The sun and the moon and the stars, which you, they're the work of your fingers. And then he basically says, he says, how are we even a blip on your radar? Like, in comparison to that, we are so small and finite and inconsequential seemingly. Why do you even notice us, let alone care for us? And how does he answer that question? Not by saying that we're good enough, we're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like us. No, he, he's not talking about who, how we esteem ourselves, how we view ourselves. He takes us to how God esteems us, what God intended us for. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. As a matter of fact, that's the whole reason why the writer of Hebrews brought in angels and Jesus on the front end, was to get us to Psalm 8 to see that we were made lower than the heavenly beings, but yet for, I would say, a greater purpose even than the angels. It says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then do you see what he lists as the all things there in Psalm 8? Sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over everything that creeps over the earth. As a matter of fact, most scholars think that David wrote Psalm 8 after meditating on Genesis 1. That this is his prayerful meditation on the creation account. And he paints this amazing picture of the glory of the created universe, the smallness of humanity by comparison, but yet the exalted position of humanity as the crown jewel of God's creation. We were made in God's image to relate to Him and reflect Him by ruling over His world. And in verse 9, the way the psalm ends, We're exalted over creation not so that way we are praised for our greatness, but so that God might be praised for His greatness. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 paints such a beautiful picture of creation and man's role within creation. It sounds beautiful. I would venture to guess that many of those who don't even believe the gospel, could read, believe the Bible is true, could read Psalm 8 and say, that's beautiful. And if it were true, that would be great. But how can it be true when mankind's rule over creation has often been anything but a blessing? What Psalm 8 shows us is that we're not just the top of the food chain. We're not just the currently most highly evolved animal who's on the top of the hill until a more highly evolved creature comes after us. We are God's image bearers made in His likeness. 
We were created by our Creator King to be His creative co-rulers. That's our role as people. We were created to care for and cultivate God's earth, God's world, so that it might be fruitful and flourish, so that people and animals and plants and all of it might flourish and fill the earth. What began in the Garden of Eden was meant to spread and fill the earth. But that hasn't happened. At least not fully and not rightly. There are many amazing things that humanity has done over the ages. I mean, think about the room that we're in right now. Every single thing that we are surrounded by has been cultivated by humans from the raw materials of creation to be a room that's climate-controlled with data projectors. I mean, we have smartphones in our pockets. Humans have developed some impressive things, right? Beavers can make some pretty cool dams. I've seen nature videos about it. But they can't do this kind of stuff. But even then, even with the things that humans have created that have been a blessing, there have been just as many things that have made life on earth much more dangerous, much more disastrous. For most of human history, humans have lived more at the mercy of the forces of nature than vice versa. Even to this day, we still do. We can't control where the rain falls. There's droughts, there's famine, diseases, earthquakes, wild animals, unclean water. Even today, the majority of the human population on earth lives most of the time without climate control. Without, we're at the mercy of what's going on in the world around us. Sometimes for those of us that live in industrialized nations, we can see more clearly the ways that humans throughout history have been oppressive toward the world around us. But I would venture to guess that for most of human history, most people have seen it the opposite. They've seen that the world around us is oppressive to human life just as much as we might be oppressive toward it. The point of all that is that the peaceful, blessed rule of humanity over creation has not been realized. Even the measure of control that we exert over creation is a small percentage and a distorted picture of what God intended. That's the point of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 8, when he says, at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, to humanity. We don't see the world of Psalm 8 played out in our day-to-day lives. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're like a runner that trips out of the starting blocks as soon as the gun goes off. Like a plane that that has catastrophic engine failure right after takeoff. There's a movie that just came out about a, a circumstance like that. The question we need to ask is, what went wrong? Why isn't Psalm 8 the reality of our lives? And I'm going to tell you a familiar story about two naked people in a garden. God created the first two people, Adam and Eve, to rule and care for his creation and make it grow and flourish from there. But they made a devastating choice. And because every single one of us has been born from them, we share in the consequences and the shame of that decision. We were made in God's image to rule over his world, but we cast off God's glory and sought to establish our own. Now our heads are covered in shame rather than crowned with glory and honor. The serpent tempted Eve to step out from underneath God's authority and live as her own authority. 
He promised her that this would bring freedom, self-determination, equality with God. But it was a bald-faced lie because Satan himself had already been brought under the curse and slavery of death because of his own rebellion against God. And so he tempted Eve to enter under the same yoke of slavery to sin and death that he himself was under. You have to understand this. Humanity was created to rule with God, and now we are not only rebels against God, we've fallen even farther than that. Look at, look at what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 calls us. It talks about how Jesus came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Look at the comparison here between the way that humanity is described in Psalm 8 and the way that we're described in Hebrews 2.15. We were created, as it were, to be the princes and princesses in God's house. But now through our rebellion, we have become slaves, covered in shame, enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. Gosh, the more I was looking at this this week, one phrase kept popping in my mind. It's what David said when he found out that that King Saul and his best friend Jonathan had been killed on the same day. He cried out to God and said, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And when you look at what humanity was intended to be at the beginning and what we have become, oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is not the way it was intended to be. But from the moment that we fell, from the moment that we stepped out from God's authority and sought to establish our own, from the moment that we were exiled from God's courts to wander as slaves throughout the earth, God made a promise that it wouldn't always be this way. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised to the woman that one day, actually, he's promised to the serpent that one day someone would come from the woman, a man would be born from Adam and Eve who would wage war against the serpent and crush him. That's good news. It would not always be this way. But here's where I want, to, I want you to, if you've, if you've checked out for a second, come right back right now because this is huge. This is where, honestly, I think our, our thinking gets a little wonky on our understanding of what it is that God is seeking to do. Many of us are familiar with that Genesis 3 promise of a snake crusher who would come and wage war against Satan. Many of us are aware that that promise was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later. But what, where we get a little fuzzy is on what does that victory mean? If Jesus has fulfilled the promise of a snake-crushing king, what does that victory look like? I would venture to guess that if I asked most of us, we would say something like this. Well, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has paid the penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven and be saved from an eternity in hell. Is that kind of the answer you were thinking in your mind? And here's the thing. I would absolutely agree and rejoice with God over every single part of that statement. Jesus did die to pay the penalty for sin so that we might be forgiven and rescued from hell. But I also firmly believe that's, that's, that's only the half of it. That's only the half of it. That statement that Jesus died for our sins to, for, to forgive us so that we would be saved from hell talks about what we've been saved from, but it says nothing about what we've been saved for. What have we been saved for? Well, here's the question I would say that is closely related to that. 
What were we created for? Psalm 8. To be crowned with glory and honor and have dominion over the works of God's hand. That's what we were made for. If all that Jesus does is save us from the consequences of our failure, that is an incomplete solution. But for many of us, This is where our functional understanding of the gospel stops. Jesus died for me. I know I'm forgiven. I don't have to face an eternity in hell. And that is absolutely true. And it is so, so incomplete. Here's the point, guys. Jesus Christ came not only to save us from the consequences of our failure, but to secure our success. To secure the reality that we would finally become what God always intended us to become. Look back at chapter 2, verse 5. To whom has God subjected the world to come? Who is he given the rulership over the world to come to? In verse 5. Us. Humanity through Jesus. Absolutely. Do you see the promise here? He will get us there. The world to come will be under the rule of a renewed humanity. We will be there, but we're not there yet. Look again at verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We know even now that we're not living in that world to come yet. But here's what we do see. Look at verse 9. This is the focus of everything. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Why did he say everything in chapter 1 about Jesus and the angels? To get us to this point where we see that the glorious Son of God, who is more exalted than the angels, was made lower than the angels for our sake. This is actually the first time in the book of Hebrews that the writer uses Jesus' personal name. Up until now, he's called him the Son, the Son, the Son. But now he says, I don't want you to have any fuzziness in your head about the exact historical person I'm talking about. It's Jesus. The glorious Son of God who was made lower than the angels for our sake is Jesus of Nazareth who walked and talked in the land of Palestine and rose back victorious after his crucifixion to heaven where he's at the right hand of God right now. That's who we're talking about. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, who's now been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You see that? Why has Jesus been crowned with glory and honor? Because of this suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is such a beautiful passage. Oh my gosh. Jesus suffered the curse of death that we deserved. He placed himself under our curse in order to experience it on our behalf. That's that word tasted means, to experience. He experienced, he took on death for us. And that, that is the decisive event that is moving all of human history toward God's intended end. Not just roll credits because the story's over, but the completion of what God intended to have in the beginning. Because Jesus suffered the curse of death, he has now been crowned with glory and honor. Did you notice that's the same phrase that we read in Psalm 8 of humanity? The idea here is that 
Jesus Christ, through his victory over death, has now inherited the glory and honor that God always intended for humanity. He has been crowned and seated to rule with God. And everything will be put at his feet. And our feet, too. You see that? The hope of the gospel for humanity is about more than just the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of our sins is such a precious truth. We should hold on to it tightly and we should never, ever, for all eternity stop thanking God for the fact that our sins have been wiped away. But we also need to understand that the forgiveness of our sins is a means to an even greater end. That we with Jesus might be crowned with the glory and honor that God always intended us to carry and rule over the work of his hands. Jesus came to be the humanity that we were always intended to be. And through his suffering of death has inherited the glory that we were always created to carry. But look at verse 10. We're going to look more at verse 10 next week, but look at this. It says that it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. You see that? Okay, Jesus suffered death and has now been crowned with glory and honor. And in verse 10, it makes it absolutely clear that God's purpose wasn't just to glorify Jesus, but to bring many sons to glory with him. That we might inherit that glory that we were always created to have. Here's the point, guys. The writer of Hebrews has taken this group of people on this whole journey from the heavenly places to earth to suffering and death and now exaltation because he knows that his people are bogged down and weary over the normal everyday circumstances and trials of life. And he's saying to them, keep going. I know life is hard. I know it's not yet the way that God intended it to be. But one day it will be. How do I know that? Because Jesus Christ suffered death on our behalf and is now exalted to the right hand of God. And he's bringing us with him. Don't lose heart. And I would say the same thing to you today. Like Chris said last week, do not drift from Jesus. Do not neglect what he has said. Hold fast to Jesus even when life is hard. Even when you go through suffering that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, hold fast to Jesus. Even when life is just annoyingly frustrating, you're like, why should I have to deal with just these petty little, get out of my way? Hold fast to Jesus. Because whether the problems are big or just annoyingly small, press on through them and unspeakable glory awaits on the other side. Jesus said the same thing when he was speaking to the church at Laodicea, which wasn't so much persecuted as they were lukewarm and complacent. But he makes the same call to them to keep going. In Revelation chapter 3, can you put that verse up? Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What? To sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you see Jesus' desire in this passage? He's saying, keep going. I want to share my rule with you. 
It's what I wanted from the very beginning, and I've made a way to get us there. So don't drop out along the way. Keep going. The one who conquers will sit down with me. A couple chapters later, in Revelation chapter 5, we have this picture of the four elders worshiping Jesus, who's pictured in that scene as a lamb that had been killed, but miraculously is alive again. And they cry out this amazing song to Jesus in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? Reign on the earth. In the world to come, we shall, for those of us who stay and hold on to Jesus, because he is holding on to us, we will reign with him on the earth. At the very end of the book of Revelation, when John's actually given a vision of the world to come, if you haven't read Revelation 21 and 22, do it. It's amazing. But in part, in 22, this is how he describes this world to come. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed. The curse of death will not have even, there won't even be the, 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 the slightest hint of a smell of it. It'll be gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. Do you get that this is where the story is going? This is where all of human history is headed. It is only through Jesus that we will taste the glory to come. So if there is anything tempting you to move away from him, understand it holds no lasting hope for you. There is nothing there for you. But if in following Jesus, you know that it's making your life harder, Jesus would say, it's supposed to. It did for me too. But look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated in glory at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep going. In these last couple of minutes, let me just unpack a couple things that I just think even this week we can do with this passage, we can do to wrap our heads around it. And the first one is this. Try to wrap your head around just how badly God wants to share his glory with you. Do you see God's desire in this? God wants to share his glory with you even more than you want your life to be easy or successful or prestigious. God wants you to experience the world to come even more than you want to experience all that there is in this world. God has a dream for us to rule the world with him, and he wants this dream to come true even more than you want your dream job or your dream house, or even your dream spouse. And he doesn't just want it to come true, he's making it come true. He is making this the reality for all eternity. I started out by saying that oftentimes what happens when we encounter problems is we have to step back and make sure we haven't put the cart before the horse. Do you see what I'm saying now? Instead of looking to God for what you want from him, Look to God for what he wants for you. 
Can you put up that last slide this week? It's all good, good, it's there. Hey, you've already read it. I can just move on because you got it. Every, make sense? Okay, good. Do those things this week. All right? Really wrestle through that. God, are my dreams the same as yours? Would you bring my desires in line with your desires for me? Some of you I know are in here this morning and you're discouraged and you're worn out and you feel defeated because life is not going the way you want it to. And you're actually, if you're honest, you're frustrated with God because you keep asking him to help and he doesn't seem to be helping you. Let me, as graciously as I can, say this. Could the reason be why you don't feel like God is helping you is because the things that you're asking him for are actually contrary to what he wants for you. Could it be that your goals for your life, for your career, for your marriage, for your kids are actually at odds with his goal for you to share in his glory for always and ever? And let me ask you this question. Why should we expect God to help us work against himself? That's why it's so important to step back and go, God, your desires are better than mine Your destiny for me is better than anything I could cook up for myself, and you're actually making it happen. So anytime that we willingly or ignorantly settle for something far less than what God wants for us, understand that the most loving thing that God can do in that situation is oppose us, to stand in our way, to keep us from getting what we want because what He wants It's so much better. That's why we've entitled this whole series, Jesus is Better. Because he is. No matter what you put against him, he's better. And every single one of us, myself included, needs to be constantly reminded of that fact. And if you've ever experienced the loving discipline of your heavenly father as he strikes down and kills the idolatrous desires that you try to put between him and you. Sometimes he does it slowly over time. Sometimes he cuts your legs out from under you and you go, what just happened? But when God, our loving Father, opposes the things that we put against him, if you've experienced that, you know it's never fun. It's always painful, but it's always good. And it's ultimately glorious. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Lord. Oftentimes we we wonder if the problems in our life is because we're thinking too lowly of ourselves or the problems in our life is because we're thinking too highly of ourselves. And I think what this passage is telling us is that it's not about what we think of ourselves. It's about what you think of us. We deserve nothing from you but your wrath. But the gospel story is not about what we deserve. It's about you accomplishing what you had always intended to give us. The glory that this passage speaks of, we do not in any way deserve. And in some ways, I think for some of us, we're wrestling with going, is this making too much of us? And please, under, like, Lord, I, I'm not in any way trying to puff us up wrongly or set us above you, but I've just been drawn to your word this week to see the glory that you yourself desire to share with us. And would you make us, graciously, would you make us discontent with anything else? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus.